The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Uh, well, good morning. I think I've met a number of you before. Uh, my name's uh, Dave Fowler, uh, and I do work out at the, the university here at the Sunshine Coast, work a little bit like a missionary. Uh, I'm going to take you through Daniel 1 this morning because it almost mentions a uni degree. It's a little bit of uh, one of my favourite passages, so just see if you can spot the uni moment. Um, but don't do that right now. I'm going to pray. You can just stay seated for this prayer, uh, and then we'll go through and have a look at this cracker of a passage together. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are indeed the God of the whole world, the God of history, the God not only of your people, but the God of everybody. And so we pray that as we look at this ancient manuscript of your mighty deeds from years ago, we pray that we could see you more clearly today, appreciate you, uh, and be all the more eager to serve your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I do work out at the uni, and uh, uni students are fun to work with because they're at that beautiful age where they're beginning to see that there's just far more to the world than perhaps you can see with the naked eye. Uh, they're beginning to realise that there's lots of powers, there's lots of people, there's lots of influences around them, and that those influences, although you can't always see them and test them, that they're just really important. You need to kind of open your eyes and become familiar with the things you can't see if you're going to figure out how to live well. Uh, I love seeing that in uni students, but I also love coming home and interacting with my kids who are still young enough to be beautifully unaware that there's far more to the world than what you can see uh, and really think the world is just a product of your own choices. And so my youngest son is 12 or just turned 12 two days ago. Uh, we just had his birthday party yesterday and it was just a great day of watching kids interact who just have no idea on how the world works. It was just this beautiful moment. 12-year-old kids are still kids. They really just thought that what they wanted was the most important thing in life. And so even though it was a party, you had these eight 12-year-old boys who smelt like men, I might add, but you know, these eight 12-year-old boys interacting together, all wanting different things. And it was just almost this little circus as they just tried to figure out who was going to do what. Little different to my daughter, who's 14. As a 14-year-old girl, you're sort of starting out on that journey that actually what other people want is quite important. So she's very, very aware. Every lunchtime is just this, almost this test as to what other people are thinking and what they're feeling and what's going on in their lives. And if you can't pass the test, if you don't know what other people want, then your life just becomes that little bit more difficult. Then, of course, there's my uh, 17 and 19-year-old boys, still totally ignorant of what everyone else wants, but very aware of what, that they should be. They should be perhaps a little bit more interested in at least what mum wants. Now, why do I mention that? Well, today's passage is all about seeing the unseen. It's all about the importance of knowing that there is more to this world than what you can see, and if all you have is what you see, then you're really not going to see anything at all. Uh, that's what Daniel chapter 1 is about. It's about the unseen reality of this world that if you can see, then you'll see how to live. But if you can't see it, then you won't see anything. And we're going to see that, well, through of all things, a really powerful king. So I'm hoping you have your Bibles open at this point. If you've got the Bibles open, you're going to find this journey much smoother. Uh, so please uh, come along with me as we read through and interact with Daniel chapter 1. It starts like this. In the third year 
of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. What's fantastic about verse 1 is it lets you know what you would have seen if you were there on the day. If you were there in that moment in history, all those hundreds of years ago, what you would have seen is you would have seen Nebuchadnezzar, He's the king or the ruler of the then superpower of the day, the ruler of Babylon, and he simply turned up, besieged Jerusalem and defeated it. Now, there's no mention of any struggle. There's no mention of any war. It's just a massively overwhelming force just coming in and doing whatever he wanted to his enemy. As a passionate Blues supporter, it pretty much reminds me of every State of Origin game I've seen for about the last 10, 15 years where these marauding barbarians just come in and annihilate your best warriors and there's nothing you can do about it. But anyway, there you go. Uh, verse 1 is what you would have seen if you were there on the day. A powerful king besieging Jerusalem and Jerusalem falling. But verse 2 is where, if you like, you start to get revelation. Verse 2 is where you start to see the unseen reality of this chapter and verse 2 is where we really need to start listening if we're going to get to know what's happening. In verse 2 we read, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. Now, funnily enough, God's only mentioned uh, doing three things in this chapter. A little harder to see in English, but in Hebrew, that's the language this was originally written in, it's the same verb that's used to describe what God does three times. So in verse 17, we're going to read that God gives knowledge to Daniel. In verse 9, we're going to see that God gives or he causes compassion towards Daniel. And in verse 2, God gives, or God delivers, as your English version probably says, he delivers Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, verse 1 tells you what you could see, an invading king who conquered Jerusalem. But verse 2, if you like, it tells you God's side of the equation, what he was doing, and he gave his people to their enemies. The Lord de delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah into his hand but there's more than that going on in verse 2 verse 2 really sets up everything that we need to know for this chapter uh, and it does it through well in a reasonably subtle way for example did you notice in verse 2 that Nebuchadnezzar isn't named now I work at uh, university I love interacting with the English students they're a little bit more fun than the engineers got a little bit more of imagination to them uh, and they find it a little easier to read the Bible because they know what a pronoun is if you know what a pronoun is that's that thing that you use so that you don't have to keep using someone's name over and over again uh, it stops English being so repetitive and it works initially if you read verse 2 but the interesting thing about verse 2 is the one that the verse is all about Nebuchadnezzar He's never named. And it gets a little awkward. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, that's Nebuchadnezzar's hands, into his hands, along with the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off. Now, when you read he there, that's another pronoun. That's where it starts to get a bit confusing. Who's the he there? Well, if you go back a little bit, it, it could be Jehoiakim, it could be God. It actually is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar should be named there. But he's not. It's a little grammatically sloppy. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia 
and put them in the treasury house of his God. Did you notice the way that the Bible, the, the author here, deliberately leaves out Nebuchadnezzar's name? The verse is all about him, but if all you see is Nebuchadnezzar, you're not going to see what's going on. This verse is about what God is doing through Nebuchadnezzar. God has given his people over to this uh, powerful king. But there's also another little hint in verse 2, something that you need to know. Again, it's a little harder to see in English. I'll try not to repeat that phrase too many more times. But that second sentence, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon. Again, if we were following the Hebrew, what it would actually say is that the, the land of Shina. It's the land of Shina that's referred to in chapter 1. Why is that important? Well, this is history. But it's more than history, it's well-written history, it's the Bible. And the Bible's got some really clever ways of giving you links and helping you remember prominent things that's happened in the past. Now, the land of Shina, it's not mentioned very many times in the Old Testament, but the first couple of times that it is mentioned is in Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel ends up being in the land of Shina, which then becomes the land of Babylon. Now, for those of you who are lucky enough to know your Bible well, do you remember what happened at the Tower of Babel? The Tower of Babel was that moment when all of the people in the world got together to try and stop God and his influence over humanity. They got together to try and make a name for them so that God could stop dictating how life works. But of course, you can't stop God's control. So what did God do in the land of Shina? Well, he confused their languages. He made them babble to one another. And through that, he distributed them out of the land of Shina. What's going on in Daniel chapter 1? Well, again, we've been reminded at the beginning of the verse, this chapter is all about what God does, what God gives. And we've got a reversal, if you like, of the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, God distributed people all over the world because he was sovereign and in control. What's going on in verse 2? Well, it looks like he's out of control. His people have just lost a battle, and yet the reverse is true. God is now, if you like, reversing what happened in Genesis 10 and 11. He's drawing his people back to the land of Shina, back to Babylon. And with that written, we now have everything we need to know for the chapter to make sense. God is in control. God is drawing his people to the land of Shina. God gives, and that's the product of reality. Well, there's the intro. As we get into the chapter, now pretty much every chapter in the Old Testament works the same way. There's an introduction that sets the scene. That's what you need to know. Then there's a problem, and then there's a solution. And it doesn't take long to see what the problem is in this chapter, the problem that all of the tension is going to revolve around. Uh, and you get that there in verse 3. Now, as I read out verse 3 and 4 for you, I want you to see if a young man that fits this description comes to mind for you. So let me read it for you. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for all kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Now, did anyone come to mind for you when that was read out? Maybe Jimmy? 
except for that bit where he says, you know, they're well. And as it turns out, he's not immune to COVID, so he's not here today. So I don't know who you thought of when verses 3 and 4 were read out. Um, but the way that 6th you know, century BC warfare used to work is that, well, to control the people that you had just conquered, what you did is you got together the natural leadership of the day, you know, the best and the brightest, the people who would have led that nation, and you either assassinate them, sort of get them out of the way, or you assimilate them, you make them one of you. And the beauty of assimilating, it's not only cleaner, there's kind of less to clean up. If you can assimilate the natural leadership of the day, then you make those leaders your subjects. And it's just a way of domesticating the people. If you can assimilate the natural leaders, well, those people are so much easier to control. But that brings out the problem of the chapter. Now, it's a little bit of a shame if you go to a different country or to a different place and you assimilate fully and you lose track of your own culture. That sort of thing used to happen a lot in Australia. When you moved here, we would invite you to assimilate, to try and, I guess, step away from your previous culture and become just like us. But, of course, when that happened, it, we recognise now that it wasn't always great. There's a little bit of a tragedy when you assimilate fully to another culture and you lose something of who you are. But for the people of God to assimilate fully and to become just like the nations around them, it's actually a far bigger problem than just losing their cultural identity. And you get a bit of a clue as to that's what's going on in verse 7. Now in verse 7 we meet Daniel, who incidentally his name in Hebrew means God is my judge. He's renamed Belshazzar. And Hananiah, whose name means Yahweh has been gracious, he's renamed Shadrach. Then we've got Mishael, whose name means who is what God is. He's renamed Meshach. And then there's Azariah, whose name means... Actually, I've got no idea. I couldn't figure that one out. But you kind of get the point, don't you? All of these men are actually named after God. They point out something about God simply when you mention their names. What's the big deal about the people of God? The big deal about the people of God is God. So for the people of God to lose their culture, well, that risks not just losing their identity, it risks them losing God. You see, when the people of Israel first became the people of God, they were given a job description, and their job description was, show everyone what God is like. So Exodus 19, when the people of God were rescued out of slavery, they were told by God... Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What is it that priests do? Well, they stand between God and the people. They show the people what God is like. What's it mean to be holy? Well, if you're holy, you're just distinct. You're just set apart. You're just something different. The people of God were meant to be set apart to be like God. And although what's going on to the people of God at this point is not targeted, it's not an anti-people of God move, assimilation is what Babylon got everybody they conquered to do. The problem for the people of God is that you assimilate, you risk losing God himself. That's the problem of the chapter. What are Daniel and his mates going to do about it? Then we read verse 8, verse eight rather. But Daniel 
resolved. Literally, the phrase there is just Daniel set his inner man or his inner heart. And what he does when he resolves, he sets his inner heart against his enemies, is he actually becomes, well, he almost becomes a rebel who's now going to stand up to this invading force and he's actually going to do the most powerful thing that he could do, verse 8, he's going to not defile himself with the royal food and wine. Now, I must admit, when I read this for the first time, I was a little disappointed with that. Daniel's a young man. He's probably only about 18 or 19. He's just resolved himself. He set his inner heart against the enemy's schemes. I must admit I was hoping for a little more action. You know, maybe he was going to break out ninja style and just trying to break into Nebuchadnezzar's throne room or something and assassinate him or something. But no, what's his great act of rebellion? He cuts back on the cake. He withholds the wine. That's Daniel's plan to stand up to the superpower, the enemy of that day. What on earth is going on? Why does Daniel say no to the royal food and wine? Now, um, actually, I just met some people uh, in that moment we had before. You get to say good day to the people around you. I just met an exercise physiologist. Good day again. Uh, we live in a culture right now, don't we, where being healthy and being fit is super important. Now, we live on the coast, there's lots of sunshine, even in summer, it's very important to look good all the year around. Uh, I work on university, there's a lot of effort put into the uni sphere into looking good. It's far more important to look good than actually be healthy a lot of the time. In Daniel 1, it became popular a number of years ago to start reading Daniel 1 as almost God's self-help guide into how to be healthy and fit. Uh, and so it's not hard now, you just do any internet search where people will tell you that what Daniel 1 is all about is it's God's secret, if you like, to healthy and wealthy living, where if you eat this way, you're going to be better off. So you can do this later if you want, you can look up daniel.com and you can look into the secret of the Daniel diet where you can become healthier through vegetables. I ate a vegetarian meal once, didn't do much for me. What's going on in Daniel chapter 1? Is this Daniel's way to show us actually the secret to better health? Well, no. No, that's not what's going on at all. If you think Daniel 1 is trying to tell you that vegetables are better for you than rich food, than booze and meat, then you've totally missed the point of Daniel 1 and the problem is you missed the miracle. Food isn't the big deal here. What we see in Daniel chapter 1 is the miracle of God, which is why I'm sort of harping on in this point. Because remember, Daniel was an 18-year-old prisoner of war. This is not some fat kid who needs to go on a diet so he can look good. This is a skinny runt who's been mistreated but now needs to cut it in the, you know, uh, with the rulers, with the aristocrats of the day. Not a fat guy who needs to lose a few pounds. This is a skinny kid that looks, needs to look like a rich, soft ruler. And he's been offered rich food so he can look like every other ruler, rich and soft and fat. But he said no, and he just wants to eat vegetables and water. And did you see that there in verse 10? Verse 10? When Daniel announces his plan, I'm just going to stick with the veggies and water, the guy in charge of him says, no, 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 if you do that, you're going to look thin. 
If you look thin, you don't look like a ruler. I'm going to get in trouble about that. But Daniel says, no, 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 just, just test me. Test me for the 10 days. And at the end of those 10 days, it says there in verse 12 that Daniel looked healthier in appearance. But he got, again, you've got to remember this is an ancient manuscript. What did it mean to look healthy back in the day? Well, again, if we follow the Hebrew, quite literally, verse 12 says this. He looked better in appearance and fatter in flesh. He ate nothing but veggies and water and he looked fatter at the end of 10 days than the guys who were eating the rich food that the king was eating. Now at this point I did a little bit of research, you know, maybe there's some sort of uh, trick to the word fat in Hebrew, maybe it doesn't mean what we think it means. Uh, so I looked it up. The word fat does indeed occur a lot of times in the Old Testament. Uh, most famously in Genesis 41. In Genesis 41, there's a dream about, uh, with um, Joseph. And Joseph had a dream about some thin cows and some fat cows. I don't know if you can remember that, where he dreamt. And there were seven thin cows uh, and there were seven fat cows. And the seven thin cows ate the seven fat cows. I don't know if you can remember that long-winded way of saying the word fat just means fat. What's going on in Daniel chapter 1? This skinny kid got fat because he ate vegetables and water and he got fatter than the kids eating KFC. What's going on? Well, remember what Daniel chapter 1 is all about. Daniel chapter 1 is the story of the God who gives And if you can't see what God is doing, says God, you'll never understand reality. If all you have is your eyes, this world won't make sense. Because if all you have is your eyes, what you're going to think is that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who's in control. You're going to think that Nebuchadnezzar conquered the people of God and that God is dead and that he's powerless. Why did Daniel get fat? Because God is powerful. Because he's sovereign. Because he's in control. And he gave, of all things, fatness to Daniel. I feel like I've been blessed by God at this point. I'm not sure how you're feeling. But of course, this story is all about the God who gives. So verse 9, if you read again, Now God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. This plan only worked because God gave sympathy. He gave favour. He gave loyal, steadfast love, if you're familiar with that word in the Old Testament. That, that love that never gives up and never stops ending. God gave that to Daniel through his captor. And because God had given favour and sympathy, Daniel's plan was able to take place. And of course, you've got to remember that where they are is the land of Shina, the land of idolatry, the land where people tried to stand up against God. Daniel says no to this food, even though it was better, because no doubt there was some sort of connection to foreign gods. And so Daniel steps back from that, puts himself almost in harm's way, eating nothing but veggies and water. God honours that because Daniel is showing that he's going to be faithful to the God who gives. But God gave even more, verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. This is where the uni degree kicks in, I reckon. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king, he brought them in, and the chief officials presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. 
Then the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. Now, as I read verse 20, pretend you're Nebuchadnezzar, and you've got to try and figure out why Daniel is so smart. What explanation would you give? In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters of his whole kingdom. Why did Nebuchadnezzar think Daniel and his boys were so clever? Because he'd trained them for three years. He'd put them through a uni degree. He'd assimilated them. He'd turned them. He'd made them Babylonians. He was the reason that they had learnt so much and now their role was to serve him. Why was Daniel clever? Same reason he was fat. God gave him wisdom and understanding. This whole story is about the God who gives. And Nebuchadnezzar is totally fooled. He's totally blind. He's got no idea what's going on because he thinks reality is just the product of what you can see. He doesn't know the God who's in control. He doesn't know what's really going on. And through Daniel... Well, Nebuchadnezzar is made a fool of. But he's not only made a fool of, he's got no idea what's going on. Through Daniel, if you like, God outlives and outmaneuvers and outmasters the king of the superpower of the day. Verse 21. And Daniel remained until the first year of King Cyrus. What do we do with this beautiful chapter? Well, in this chapter, we get a little bit of a laugh at Daniel, the guy who ate veggies and got fat. We get to see maybe that the, the mockery of university. You can go there and learn whole good things, but if God wants to give wisdom, you're going to learn far more through that. But eventually what we see is that because God is good, because this whole world is the product of the God who gives, because God is in control then what we really need to do if we're going to be God's people is figure out what God is doing and get on board with that. Because whatever it is that's going on in this world is going to be eventually decided by the God who gives and the God who is in control. It's put like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Fix your eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. For what is seen, you know, the things you look around at, they're temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. If you want to figure out how to live well, Daniel 1 says, the New Testament says, then you need to see the unseen reality of this world, that there is a God who is in control and there is a God who is looking to give generosity, to give favour, and that's what life is all about. Getting on board with the God who gives. But of course... Just like Daniel was given things to do by God, it's the same with us. Ephesians chapter 2, For you are saved by grace through faith. And that grace word is very similar to the word we read in Daniel 1, where Daniel was given grace or given favours by his captors. God giving grace is what he's always been into. You are saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourself, it's a gift from God. Reality is the product of the God who gives. It is a gift from God, not from work, so that no one can boast. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's actually something left for us to do, which God himself prepared 
so that we can walk in them. Just like in Daniel's day, God has left us with something good to do because he is in control and gives good gifts. So what are we going to do? This again, I reckon, is where Daniel chapter 1 is helpful because Daniel chapter 1 shows us that even small rebellions can actually be quite powerful in the kingdom of God. What was the temptation put before Daniel? It was just the temptation to assimilate. All he had to do to make his life better was just look like everybody else. All he had to do was just join in, go along with what everyone else is doing. He just had to rock up to classes for those three years, learn what everyone else put, uh, was learning, and just assimilate. What do you reckon God's trying to tell us through Daniel chapter 1? Be careful. <laughs> Be careful when it comes to assimilating. Be very careful when, as an Aussie, you just look like all the people around you. And Daniel chapter 1 reminds you that even small resistances, small rebellions are worth it when it comes to this whole problem of assimilating. What's it look like to assimilate where I work in universities? Well, actually, the biggest, well, if I can put it like this, the biggest temptation to assimilate on campus is probably not what you're thinking. We live in a world where it's not hard to turn on the TV and see where Australian culture and Christian culture are just sort of dividing. Uh, I don't know if you know that or not, but this week coming is Diversity Week uh, in much of Australia where you're going to be encouraged to wear purple uh, so that you can assimilate and show your compassion for the LGBTI community. I want to suggest that although that issue is massive at university, the biggest temptation to assimilate on university is actually just to make your life all about you. The biggest temptation at university to assimilate to Australian culture is actually just the temptation just to rock up, get whatever you can get out of university for the least amount of work so that you can make the most amount of money and have the best lifestyle and just enjoy the view on the coast. That's what I reckon is the biggest temptation to assimilate at university where you decide your life around the part-time job that gives you the most amount of money so that you can eat the most amount of KFC and spend the most of time on the beach and you get the lowest marks you can but still get through your university with that pass mark so you can then get the job where you can repeat the whole cycle. What would it look like to resist assimilation at university? It would look like standing out. But standing out in what kind of way? I reckon it would look like standing out in a way where you did something super radical and maybe mentioned Jesus' name. That would really make you stand out on university. Now, I spend most of my time trying to encourage uni students to do that, and whenever they do, they have not assimilated. You turn up to university and you're more interested in the person alongside you than you are in yourself, and you stand out. What would it be like in your workplace, your environment, wherever you're from, to not assimilate but maybe have a small rebellion here or there because you know that life is the product of the God who gives and he's giving you a good work and so you're going to be involved in that. Had a couple of tradies around at my place uh, during the week. I needed a concreter. They're really hard to get at the moment. And when the concreter turned up, uh, I was reminded of the whole world, of the tradie world. My brother's a tradie. I've spent a little bit of time on work sites uh, and I forgot 
the colourful vocabulary, I guess, that's used rather loudly on most work sites. Wouldn't be hard as a Christian to turn up and not assimilate, I reckon, on most work sites. You could probably do that fairly quickly. The office worker. I've got a little bit more experience in working than offices than I do on work sites, and in my limited experience, what uh, the workplace sort of lacks in smut, it makes up for in gossip. <laughs> I don't know if any office workers are here, but if you work with other people and you've got to wear a collar to work, the language is a little different, but the intent is the same, isn't it? There's just as much gossip and backstabbing and nasty talk going on in work offices as there are on any work site. What would it look like to resist assimilation in your workplace? By and large, if you turn up and you care for the person alongside you, you actually do what you're meant to do without complaining, and you look for a way to mention Jesus' name. You just do these, those three things, and I reckon you will resist assimilation and find it a whole bunch easier to do the good works that God has left you to do. We are saved by grace, the acts of the gracious God who has given us so much. He has left us good works to do. And I reckon Daniel 1 suggests that resisting assimilation, resisting being like everybody else, and trying to find a way to point out to the people around us that we think this Jesus guy is legit and worth finding out about, I reckon they're the sort of works that actually show that we can see. We can see the world as it actually is. We can see that this world is a product of God and his decisions and his generosity towards us. So I'm going to pray that perhaps we could all resist assimilation this week. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.